Good afternoon and welcome to the Serious Security Seminar from Purdue University. Our speaker today is Professor Paul Thompson from Dartmouth College. He's going to talk about the Durkheim Project, which is about privacy considerations in predicting military and veteran suicide risk. Paul, thank you. Hey. Hello. It's uh, good to be here at Sirius again. Um, so this, uh, you know, I'll start by talking about the Durkheim Project, uh, which was a project that uh, I've been working on with a number of colleagues over the last uh, two years. and. When I arranged to come out here, um, uh, Eugene Spafford mentioned there was particular interest in uh, some of the privacy uh, issues related to the project. Uh, and I also share that interest. So uh, towards the end of the talk, I'll uh, focus on that. And I encourage you to ask questions anytime, whether it's in the middle or at the end. Um, so at, uh, as Randy mentioned, I'm at uh, Dartmouth College. Um, I'm currently at the medical school. So Durkheim was one of the founders of the field of sociology. And uh, we named this project uh, on, in honor of him, Emil Durkheim, because he had done some work on uh, language analysis in a, a book he wrote back in 1897. So in, in our project, uh, we've put together a uh, a group of people with uh, various backgrounds, uh, including uh, machine learning and natural language understanding, text understanding, or computational linguistics, and uh, also uh, medical experts uh, such as psychiatrists. So this uh, project uh, started in the uh, summer of 2011, and our funding for the project ended um, this spring, although some of the other groups who are part of the larger program, which is called Detection and Computational Analysis of Psychological Signals, are still working for another year or so, and they're going through an evaluation phase. Our uh, software has been integrated with uh, another company, so we will be evaluated as part of that uh, evaluation of their software. So. Uh, this is providing some of the context. Uh, 50 to 66 percent uh, of in individuals who uh, die by suicide never mention uh, that they uh, or deny that they have any intent uh, for or for suicide. And uh, some of the highest um, risk individuals are also often missed uh, because you know their intent uh, often fluctuates widely. And so in this project, our original idea was to try to use social media, like uh, blog postings on uh, software such as, or you know, products such as Facebook, to try to predict uh, suicide risk. Although, as you'll see as I get more into the talk, um, so far we've uh, mostly focused on doing a study of uh, U.S. Uh, Veterans Affairs uh, medical records of veterans uh, who have completed suicide and comparing those records to records of people who either were in for uh, some kind of psychiatric visit at a Veterans Affairs Hospital or a control group. So our goal was to try to predict, um, you know, try to determine if based on that analysis of the medical record we could predict uh, which ones would commit uh, or complete suicide or not. So. In uh, one particular uh, pilot study, this is a different study, 
uh, 65% of the suicide uh, military personnel that had been in mental health treatment looked suicidal even though they denied any uh, suicide ideation. So this uh, graph um, explains some of this, the, you know, like the people who actually uh, completed suicide or didn't complete suicide and whether, you know, they looked suicidal or not. Uh, so true positives or true negatives. And, th and this isn't our say, this is just some background information. So in terms of this uh, predicting based on um, postings with social media such as Facebook or LinkedIn, Twitter, and so on, uh, our view is that uh, opting in is very critical. That, um, you know, so, some studies are done where, uh, you know, some of what's on the social media website such as Facebook, um, you know, anybody can access that. That's publicly available data. and. Uh, we, on the other hand, were only wanted to work with uh, people that knew that they were taking part in this study. So uh, we have uh, opt-in, and we don't, you know, have some kind of tricky in-user license agreements or EULA to, you know, try to deceive people into taking part in this study. So uh, and at, at this point, our initial uh, study is just an observational study. So we're just asking for people to opt in to take part in the study. We're not, uh, you know, planning any intervention uh, if it looks like someone is suicidal. Although, as I'll mention more later, uh, we are, uh, we currently have a pending protocol that's re being reviewed by an institutional review board that would allow us to develop an uh, intervention plan for people. So the technical problem for this is uh, building a system that's able to collect all this data, store it, and analyze it, and um, allow uh, clinicians to be able to react. And doing this on a scale where, say, you know, we might hypothetically over time have uh, 100,000 people who have opted in to take part in the study. So, you know, it's really a big data uh, problem. And in real time, how could you monitor all these postings and be able to predict that uh, there is uh, some suicide risk. And uh, this uh, slide go, you know, sort of show, shows a high-level uh, diagram where there's someone who has uh, opted in uh, and is providing their postings and uh, a medical database which is you know, behind a firewall and you know, it's HIPAA compliant and then a predictive model that's working with that data and providing input to a clinician's dashboard. And again, there will be more about this later, but the uh, way our opt-in works is uh, we have uh, partnered with Facebook on this project. So through their advertising or marketing, they know, you know various populations. So they know who is in the military or who is a veteran. And you know, we are only giving opt-in screens to those people to opt into our study. So I'll go into a little more detail about the technical architecture for this, how the data is collected and stored, and uh, you know the machine learning algorithms that are used, and how we will scale this up, and ultimately we hope to provide uh, automated intervention. So this is an example of what the opt-in uh, screen looks like, and this is an important aspect of our 
uh, privacy control because, again, we're not doing any of this, you know, without a person's knowledge that, you know, their opt-in postings are being collected. They have, you know, volunteered to take part in this study. Um, and later, um, if we do get IRB approval for the intervention protocol, then we will go back to all of these people who have already opt in to be observed and say, well, now we're doing this intervention study. Are you willing to opt in to this additional study? But we wouldn't just use the people who had opted in already. Um, and so this enables a uh, uh, level of privacy. And, uh, but as I'll talk about later, as far, you know, from my perspective, privacy is more complicated than just you know, that you've opted in, you've given consent to be part of a study, or that, you know, all the, you know, legal points have been addressed. I mean, I think there's also, especially in a study like this, many ethical considerations as well as strictly legal considerations. So, you know, on this cloud, you know, it shows there's all these, you know, social media activity going on. And then there's a, a gigya, uh, commercial service, the, a content aggregator that uh, collects this data, puts it in a you know you know sort of big data database, uh, Cassandra, and then we've uh, as part of this project we've built uh, an app for Facebook or also you know like for the iPhone or for Androids uh, to uh, be able to um, you know interface with the social media and. Um, so then all of this information from the opt-in postings will be collected and stored in a database uh, behind the firewall at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth, where I'm uh, an employee. And, you know, this is just a little more uh, technical detail just about how we're going to be able to scale up to handle this potentially 100,000, you know, people that are providing their opt-in postings. And so this is taking place in real time. I believe every 30 seconds it's updating for each person who's opted in and, you know, collecting, you know, their latest posts or people that have written to their Facebook wall. And as I mentioned, this is then uh, stored behind uh, HIPAA-compliant uh, firewall. So are all, are all of you familiar with HIPAA? Right. Um, so, um, and then, you know, potentially uh, it's possible to um, de-identify data that could then be used by other researchers. So far we haven't um, uh, done any of that. I mean, all of our data has stayed behind the firewall. And, you know, we're just gathering the Facebook data, as I'll talk more about later. We have done a Veterans of Affairs Medical Record Study, uh, which has remained behind the firewall. So during this project in 2011, uh, as part of our uh, uh, project with DARPA, the Detection and Computational Analysis of Psychological Signals project, we uh, funded another uh, subcontract with the Veterans of Affairs to study uh, three cohorts. And our original plan, what 
or the protocol that was approved by our committee for the protection of human subjects at Dartmouth was to create uh, three cohorts or you know groups of people uh, for the study. So one group uh, would be people that we know had uh, taken their lives in 2009, and this data comes from the Centers for Disease Control. And the data we needed to assemble this data set were the social security numbers of the people uh, who had taken their lives. And then we wanted to compare that group to a group of patients who had come to the Veteran Affairs Hospital for some kind of psychiatric related services. And then we'd have another group of 100 patients who had been at the VA, but um, you know, not for psychiatric related services. And uh, we did have some problems with this data in that of the 100 uh, people that had completed suicide, about only about 69 or 70 had actually ever come to a VA. So there was no VA medical record for you know, a fair percentage of those people. So we had to redesign our study to take that into account. And we developed a linguistic approach to trying to try to estimate the risk of suicide. And um, so we uh, generated these predictive models from the unstructured clinical notes in the medical record. So the medical record contained a lot of other data, uh, which, you know, structured information such as what drugs were prescribed or, um, you, know, you know, things like blood pressure or something like that, and, you know, like lab tests that were done. But, and, and of course, in a, you know, sort of more thoroughly developed system, you would want to take all of that kind of information into account in predicting risk as well. But in our case, we limited our predictive model to just looking at the narrative or free text portions of the medical record. So these were notes that were written by healthcare providers like uh, psychiatrists or psychologists, nurses or other um, healthcare providers. And in part because we had a delay in getting our data, um, we were supposed to have gotten our data about a year ago in like August last summer and the social security numbers which would allow us to create the data sets. But we didn't actually receive those social security numbers till mid-November. Our project was supposed to be completed by the end of December. So, you know, we didn't have a lot of time to, you know, develop very elaborate uh, models. But so it, we ended up just looking at uh, individual words or in some cases multi-word phrases as our data. And as a computational linguist, I would have liked to have done much more with that. But um, given the time, that was mostly what we could do. Um, on the other hand, we had use of some, I think, very sophisticated machine learning models that we applied to that data. And we were able to um, predict, you know, or, you know, sort of classify uh, or accurately predict to which of these three groups someone belonged based on this analysis with 65% accuracy. And that might not seem very accurate, but that actually compares fairly well with um, you know, the risk prediction that's been available in this area, but using other means. So like on the second slide or so, which I'll, I'll go back to here if I can easily go back, I'm not sure. Right, so this uh, 
Well, right, so this is the National Center for Veteran Studies at the University of Utah pilot data, where, um, you know, they were also looking at a figure of 65%. Uh, uh, it's not quite the same thing, but, uh, you know, I've been told by the psychiatrist we worked with on this project that, you know, this is, you know, typically, you know, a fairly good um, prediction accuracy. And, and again, this was based with a very simple linguistic model. And, you know, so here, you know, sort of a lot of information in this graphic, but uh, so, uh, you know, these are comparing uh, two different groups. Uh, and uh, so th these gray bars are single words, the yellow bars are word pairs, uh, then word triplets, uh, dark blue bars, and phrases are the sort of light green bars. And, you know, this shows the sort of varying levels of the sort of mean or average accuracy uh, given. And in, in this case, you know, none of the scores were quite up to 65%, but, you know, some of them were pretty close, like 63% or 62%. And this looks at some more specific features. Uh, so these were... Uh, words that were accurate in distinguishing the three cohorts. And so uh, the uh, red terms are words that were associated by the positive, uh, suicide positive cohort. So words like agitation or frightening uh, and Demerol, a particular medication. Whereas uh, the yellow terms are from the uh, psychiatric um, non-suicidal control group. So these were people that had been in for mental health-related visits, but they weren't, you know, the people who had taken their lives. And so there you had words like disheveled, preoccupied, and presbyopia, which I'm not sure what that means. But again, these are not words coming from the patient. These are words coming from the healthcare provider. And in some cases, they might be, you know, describing in their notes something that the, that the patient said, um, but, um, and then when I talk later about the Facebook study we're trying to do, there is a, a, a gap between, you know, the types of text we're using. So on the one hand, using text written about a patient by a healthcare provider, and the other hand, trying to use text, you know, actually written by the, the person who may or may not be suicidal. And so that's a pretty major issue, which we haven't addressed yet, but the thought is that the, you know, the sort of predictive model that could be built with, um, you know, these words by the healthcare providers could, in some sense, transfer over to things that people are writing about. So, I mean, somebody might say they're agitated, but this we haven't really tested yet. And so, you know, Facebook has a lot of its own data internally, and so part of our agreement with Facebook is they're going to take the predictive model that we've built and apply it to their internal data. So that would be looking more retrospectively in the past, although going forward we're collaborating with Facebook um, in, in um, this kind of research. Oh, I guess I you know, didn't mention the other uh, green terms, which are from the control group. So those were the people who had been in the VA, but not for psychiatric-related reasons. And so, you know, terms like anorexia or arthralgia or myalgias. Yes, or 
good words that help pick out that group as compared to the other two groups. And um, neither uh, the you know the PI of this project nor myself are you know psychologists or psychiatrists, and we're not domain experts, but. The psychiatrist that we were working with on this project at Dartmouth and the White River um, uh, Vermont uh, Veterans Affairs Medical Center say that, you know, this makes sense to them. These are like agitation, frightening, demoral are words that make sense as good features. So for this uh, detection computational analysis of psychological signals program, our final deliverable uh, was this, uh, you know, software infrastructure that we built to do this um, uh, opt-in prediction through social media, as well as the VA Veterans um, of Affairs Medical Record Study and the uh, machine learning classifier that worked with that. So uh, we worked with uh, Cloudera, which are any of you familiar with Cloudera? Right. So, could you say what it is? Sure. Um, they have a, uh, a distribution of Hadoop and HBase that they produce that allows you to kind of just install it like a software package and produce its amount of computer. Right. And could you explain Hadoop? Oh, sure. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, could you please use your, use your microphone? Thank you. Hadoop is a uh, distributed processing and storage framework. Right. Okay. So. Um, Hadoop is uh, an algorithm that is used uh, for machine learning, and it's an open source version of the proprietary Google MapReduce uh, software algorithm. So it, it's used a lot in big data. So you know, it's uh, a way that you can break up a problem into two parts: the mapping and the reducing, and you know, do very large scale machine learning. So, so Cloudera is. Um, so I guess the leading company that makes this available to, you know, many people use Cloudera services, including us on this project. So, so we were uh, able to build this infrastructure and, you know, delivered it before our funding ended in spring of 2013. So, um, I guess another uh, one of these open source uh, sort of machine learning environments is something called Mahout, I think, or is that a correct pronunciation? Maybe you know, for it's Mahout also. Um, but uh, we, rather than uh, using that, uh, used our own uh, environment that we developed on this project and an earlier meta-learning project. Uh, meta-learning being the idea that a lot of machine learning, in our view, is fairly ad hoc. So people, uh, you know, just try out whatever algorithm they have available or is popular, and you know, see what kind of results they get. But uh, with meta learning, the idea is that for a given data set, how could you, you know, know more scientifically what would be the right algorithm or type of algorithms or parameter settings that would be useful to use with that data set? So we had a very, some of the same people that worked on this project were part of an earlier project where we were funded to explore this idea of meta-learning. So we used some of the same software infrastructure for machine learning that we built on that project. And, uh, you know, eventually we want this prediction library to be, you know, open source with an Apache license that could be available through the community. And then since we're doing these, you know, sort of big data, real-time 
uh, sort of prediction, we also want uh, to be able to have a good trade-off be between the sort of real-time runtime, but also still be accurate. And uh, so there's another uh, group we worked with uh, called uh, B Counts that provides distributed Bayesian learning and the person we interacted with on that was uh, Alex Kozlov, and there's a website that goes into more about that. And so, as an example of this trade-off, like you know, I guess there's a saying in advertising, which of course is what is behind a lot of the web, you know, companies like say Google or something like that that if you don't find out what the user wants in five minutes, you lose the, the user. So similarly, in intrusion detection, you know, if you don't detect it right away, there may be significant damage. And similarly, in a project like this, I mean, if someone is really at risk, um, you want to be able to, you know, get this information to act on quickly. So um, on uh, July 2nd, uh, in this July, we officially launched this um, second part of our project, the part with Facebook. Uh, and so by that time, we had got the IRB approval for our protocol. And uh, there's a URL for the press release that came out with uh, the joint press release with uh, Facebook and Varen, which is the Northern New England research arm of the Veterans Affairs. Uh, and this has been fairly widely reported in the media since then, like on NPR or most recently uh, uh, CNN. And as I mentioned earlier, we're now moving, uh, we almost have completed our protocol for uh, providing intervention. So if you were able to predict suicide risk, but then you didn't do anything, that doesn't seem right. So we're um, working on uh, intervention strategy that would include uh, you know, various you know, types of intervention. So on the one hand, a, a person who opts in for the intervention study who might be in the military or could be a veteran, uh, could indicate someone who was their, uh, you know, buddy or, you know, person that they'd want, um, you know, to know about it if, you know, they were uh, feeling suicidal or it could be a family member or some other friend. Um, and if a person did have a clinician that they were working with, like, um, they, they could send their postings to the clinician or, um, you know, on another scenario, there are various 800 number hotlines, like the Conondagua, New York uh, Veterans Affairs has a Center of Excellence for Suicide Prevention, which has a national hotline 800 number. Um, and we're also working on um, something called uh, safety plan narratives. So, you know, various uh, suicide researchers have worked out uh, safety plans or, you know, things that you could recommend that you do, and there'll be more on this in another slide. But um, so, you know, we're considering these various possibilities and um, including something that, you know, if there's nobody, there's no clinician, there's no friend or family, I mean, even some kind of automated intervention.
And so this shows a sort of you know time series of uh, you might uh, you know someone who is uh, considering suicide you know means there's an ideation they're thinking about it, but of course many people who think about it never do uh, you know attempt suicide, um, and so you may see this in some blog postings. Uh, there could be repeated ideation as the next step, not just a single occurrence of that. Um, and uh, then, you know, as you're getting closer to a possible attempt at, at suicide, um, you might have, you know, time for intervention, or then you might get to a point where there's very limited time for, in for intervention or, you know, an actual uh, negative event. So we're trying to figure out, you know, sort of how to monitor what's going along along this time series. So as I've said, uh, we're hoping this month to have our um, protocol submitted, uh, and uh, we're submitting it to a commercial IRB. So we expect to have a fairly uh, quick turnaround on that. Uh, we are continuing to develop improvements in our data collection. Uh, so currently, uh, this project is not funded. Uh, we're also hoping to find additional funding. Uh, one of the motivations of our press release was hoping that make, might make foundation funding more accessible to us. And we're working with Facebook on uh, targeted demographic recruitment, which I've already mentioned. In other words, through their marketing, they know who's in the military, who's a veteran, and so on. So, you know, we've done some of that already. We have got some opt-in, uh, you know, people who've opted in already. But we're going to do another round of that. And we're, you know, identifying uh, different uh, partners, such as the Veterans Affairs or the National Center uh, that I mentioned for Veteran Studies at the University of Utah uh, to work with on our intervention. Okay, that is just a description of the project. And then coming to the privacy issues, and, and here I would definitely encourage more open-ended discussion if you have any thoughts on this, because a lot of this, um, I think even security researchers tend to focus on, you know, the technical aspects of security or privacy or, you know, the legal aspects. But as I was saying earlier, I think there are broader ethical and other aspects to it and um, and there, there's a difference in just doing a, an observational study or uh, you know analyzing medical records like we've done so far versus something we're, like that we're planning to do with Facebook where you know we're actually planning to intervene um, so you know I think there are a lot of uh, very broad issues in using social media data and as you might imagine, this—I mean, just as social media has become so popular, um, the idea of using social media as a way to predict health outcomes is, has become of great interest, especially in the area of public health. And I, I was at NIH a few weeks ago, and I uh, talked to some people involved with um, National Institute for Mental Health or. Um, you know, the one person who's, uh, you know, involved with the, I guess NIH has an internal graduate school. And so I talked to the person who's in the Department of Public Health there. 
And, you know, they were saying, like, this is one of the holy grails of public health to be able to effectively use social media. But on the other hand, you know, for public health purposes, it's maybe 98% garbage and 2% of it's useful. But, you know, it's a very difficult signal noise problem. And, and again, the difference between, you know, like a therapist talking to a patient, you know, face-to-face -face in an appointment versus, you know, a patient, you know, interacting in social media and maybe, you know, the, the clinician, you know, seeing some postings or, you know, some analysis coming in through social media that, you know, this patient is at risk or maybe you could click on that and see, well, this is what the actual posting is. And, um, you know, I know in talking to some psychiatrists that they feel like the, the psychiatric system is very overburdened at present. I mean, there aren't, aren't enough, you know, providers to deal with the patients they have already, let alone if we start, you know, bringing in more sources of data. So it becomes a fairly complicated triage problem. But, but I, I think if we could accurately, you know, detect some signal in, in this social media, that it could be useful, very useful as part of this triage. And like, like even in our study with the medical records, you know, like, you know, 30 or so of those people never had come to the VA at all who had taken their lives. So in looking into the uh, privacy aspects of this, um, I um, had contacted, um, you know, different organizations or, you know, like privacy experts related to healthcare. And one of the documents I w was given was an open letter that, that all these organizations listed here had written to Mark Zuckerberg in June 2010. Um, and, uh, so this is in particular the, uh, let's see, I'm not even sure if the group is listed here, but um, in any case, the, you know, the, of the, you know, that I was talking to, but um, so this is, you know, sort of the content of the letter, you know, just sort of these six points they wanted Facebook to, you know, at that time back in 2010 to address, to fix the app gap. In other words, let users decide exactly which applications can access their personal information. So a lot of this, and, and as you'll see in the next um, document I show, that uh, Facebook has been accused of deceptive practices in their, um, you know, their, their sort of sign-on process and this kind of thing for these various things. And uh, make instant pers personalization and opt-in by default. So are any of you Facebook users? Does all this sound familiar to you? I'm not a very active Facebook user myself, so, you know, some of this is more just sort of a technical study for me, but, um, and uh, then they were asking Facebook not to retain data about specific visitors to third-party sites that have social plugins or have likes, so if you click on like in some third-party site, then you know, all this data gets aggregated and used everywhere, unless the user chooses that interaction, that, you know, they want that, which many users, you know, quite possibly do want. And then they want to get, have the users have control over every piece of information they share via Facebook, including name, gender, profile, picture, and networks, to make HTTPS, uh, you know, secure HTTP, HTTP for all interactions be the default, 
And then if somebody decided they didn't want to be part of Facebook anymore, to provide tools to allow that person to export all of their content from Facebook to another social media provider. So could any of you tell me of your experiences with Facebook along the lines of any of these points? Or do you have any positive or negative experiences? Yes. So they've corrected those, you're saying? Yeah. Right. And, and that's what, um, you know, so I talked to the attorney who gave me this open letter, and she did indicate that most of those have been addressed by now. Um, so anyone else? I was just going to say that even if you leave Facebook, your stuff is still there. Right. I mean, right. I, I used to supervise people on parole. Yes. And I would go back to Facebook pages after they got in trouble. They'd shut their Facebook page mm -hmm. down. I could still go back and look at it and check their friends and check their postings. It doesn't go anywhere. It's still right. there. Right. So it, it is something. I mean, there's a, something mm -hmm. there that can be looked at. Right. Okay. And uh, the attorney said she would, you know, try to get back to me before the presentation today to give me the latest on all this, but you know, I, I didn't hear from her yet. But um, then more recently, just last summer, the U.S. Uh, Federal Trade Commission uh, uh, filed a complaint against Facebook for their deceptive, uh, well, various deceptive activities. And, and again, I don't know the very latest on this, to what extent it's been addressed or not. But uh, so they, they were accused of having deceptive privacy settings uh, and the unfair and deceptive 2009 privacy changes. Uh, the, and then the scope of the platform applications access to Facebook users' information, disclosure of user information to advertisers, and a deceptive verified apps program. And there's a little more detail on some of this, but the rest of it was disclosure of user photos and videos. And then there's uh, this U.S.-European Union safe harbor framework. And, and again, she t the attorney told me that many of th these issues have now been addressed, but I don't know the exact status of all of this. But, oh, oh I, I guess I didn't have more details. So um, the safe harbor idea is that, I mean, there are some, you know, sort of basic minimum things you can do to satisfy, you know, certain privacy issues, which like the European Union has, and Facebook signed an agreement saying, yes, we do all this. But in fact, at least as of a year ago, according to the Federal Trade Commission, they weren't actually doing that. Um, but again, you know, it's possible that a lot of this has been addressed. Anybody? have a comment on that or familiar with any of these specific issues? Okay. So we had a pretty large team of people working on this and a lot of these people were part-time. Uh, Chris Poulin was the principal investigator who uh, has a small business called Patterns and Predictions. Uh, I was the co-principal investigator on the project. Uh, Tom McAllister was a a traumatic brain injury psychiatrist at Dartmouth at the time, although since then he's become the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Indiana University, so he's in Indianapolis now. Uh, ben Gertzel's uh, AI programmer, Brian Shiner, is a psychologist at the uh, University of Utah, the National uh, Center for Veteran Studies. Linus Vepstas was our lead machine learning programmer. And um, you know a num number of other people uh, working on the project.
And uh, in terms of the privacy discussion, um, in 2008, I was invited to take part in an IBM deep dive on security and society. And uh, there were, uh, I don't know, about 20 of us, I think, including uh, an attorney who was the chief pri privacy officer of Facebook at the time, although I think he left shortly after that. Um, I've also discussed this with Perry Aftab, who's an internet attorney who is also on uh, advisory board at Facebook. Uh, Diane Lambert, uh, who organized a user-centered modeling uh, workshop at the University of Minnesota that I attended uh, a little over a year ago. Uh, Carrie Lorenos, the veterans advocate at Google. Um, Devin McGraws, the woman who had given me the two documents. Um, uh, the, I talked about the FTC complaints and the open letter, who is the director of the Health Privacy Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology in Washington, D.C. I'm also a member of the Sedona Conference Working Group 1 on Electronic Document Retention and Production and part of their healthcare drafting team. This is primarily a group of attorneys and judges, um, and I am neither of those, but I used to work in legal publishing, so I've been part of that group. And uh, uh, Rob Bossart is the chief epidemiologist at the Conondego, New York uh, VA Center of Excellence for Suicide Prevention. I mentioned Craig Bryan already, associate director of the National Center. University of Utah, and Jane Pearson is the uh, at the NIH uh, National Institute of Mental Health, the chair of the Suicide Research Consortium. And that's it. So, any other questions, comments, mm -hmm. privacy uh, issues? Yes. Were there any reasons other than speed that you went with the commercial IRB as opposed to, I assume, Dartmouth has one? Um, not, not really. I mean, we considered it on our first two protocols, and because we were working with Facebook, I guess that's typical, um, you know, like involving companies to work with commercial IRBs. Uh, I think, you know, part of it was also because the Tom McAllister, who had been the lead PI for Dartmouth for the project, left to Indiana University, so... And, and, you know, the, the funding had ended, so I don't think they would have, you know, analyzed our protocol without us currently having a project. So, other questions or comments? And, I, you know, I think this, uh, this sort of social media approach is, you know, generalizable to other areas, not just suicide risk prediction, but, uh, you know, other mental health illnesses or, you know, there's, um, you know, some of the people we worked with um, are interested in, I think it's the quantified self movement, uh, you know, having sensors that monitor everything going on physiologically, your exercise, your eating, your sleeping, and, you know, measuring that in the context of cohorts of other people doing that. Um, so as I, I think I said earlier, we were given the choice in this project of either developing, um, maybe I didn't mention this, but uh, some of the other people working on, the groups working on this project were doing what's called reality analysis. So you have the sensors that are monitoring what's going on in real time and, uh, you know, making predictions based on that, whereas, you know, the other choice was to do a clinician's dashboard, and you know we ended up doing the clinician's dashboard. 
So this general area is called mobile health, which you're probably familiar with. Okay, I guess if there are no more questions, you know, we can formally end, but you know, if any of you want to talk to me afterwards, that's fine too. Okay.